If you guys have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open up Second Chronicles chapter 19. We'll continue to take a look at the life of Jehoshaphat. Jumping Jehoshaphat. So we take a look, uh, there's a few kind of unique things that we see in regard to Jehoshaphat. One of those is, he's one of three, um, what's a good term, revivalists. Uh, you have Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah, and Josiah. Three kings of Judah who really lead the people in revival. The, there's a, a revival in the land, the hearts of the people change, they, they follow after the Lord. But what I like about Jehoshaphat so well is he looks real to me. I mean, I know the other guys are real, but, but I see his failures. I see his struggles. Last week, you remember, we, we studied about uh, Jehoshaphat making a deal with Ahab. And hearing from the prophet of God that it was a bad thing to go, but going anyway. And if we're honest, most of us at one time or another have found ourselves down a road that perhaps we're sure God didn't want us to go down. But nonetheless, we find ourselves in that place. And Jehoshaphat in that place, in a place he shouldn't have been, fighting a battle he shouldn't have been fighting, finds himself in trouble, calls on the name of the Lord, and the Lord delivers him. I like that. God really wanted to guide and lead and direct Jehoshaphat. And earlier we see that Jehoshaphat was a man with a single purpose, a oneness of heart, a loyal heart, the Bible calls it. Or earlier when it speaks of David, it calls David a man after God's own heart. His value, his desire, his walk was, I want to do what God wants me to do. Now, what God wants us to do is not always the easiest thing. It's not always the most popular thing. It's not always something that we're going to get a lot of strokes over or, or people are going to really appreciate what we've done. But it will always be the best because then we're following God with a singleness of heart, a singleness of purpose. Throughout scriptures in Deuteronomy chapter 6, there is the great Shema, the the Jewish people still quote it today. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one God. And you will love the Lord your God with what? And? And? So God wants us to love Him with every part of our being. A total love. Haggai, somewhere around Haggai chapter 1, the Lord says through the prophet that all the nations are going to come to the desire of the nations, speaking of God. That ultimately God is the desire of the nations. The thing that they're looking for, that thing that people are chasing, it's found in a life surrendered to God and finding our place, our uh, satisfaction in Him. Delighting in Him. Living a life for Him. Giving over to Him. Abandoning everything else. All the other things in life for the oneness, the fullness of God. And that's one of the things that Jehoshaphat does. But in chapter 19, we catch him just coming back after a failure. Let's look at it. So Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, returned safely to his house in Jerusalem. And Jehu, the son of Hanani, the seer, went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat. Now Jehu's a prophet. He's a prophet. He's a man through whom God speaks. And so what's he say? He says to King Jehoshaphat, Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Now the question he's asking is demanding an answer of no. There comes a time we've got to pick sides. You can't play both sides of the fence. And that's what Jehoshaphat's doing. He had a deal with Ahab. In fact, his eldest son, his firstborn, married uh, one of uh, Ahab's daughters. Ahab's a very wicked man. Ahab's daughter's a very wicked person. And as a result, Jehoshaphat's son is going to be a very wicked king. He's making peace with the world when what the Bible tells us is we ought to be at enmity with the world. A war with the world. We are on opposing sides. In case you can't tell, all you got to do is spend any time reading anything really that the world puts out to see that it is in opposition to God's word. You must choose a side. 
You stand with the Lord or you stand with the world. God drew the lines. You get the choice. What are you going to do? And that's what the prophet is saying to Jehoshaphat. What are you doing on that side? You know he's not. He don't love the Lord. He's not doing the Lord's work. He's killed the Lord's prophets. Why are you on his side? What are you doing, Jehoshaphat? So, therefore, the wrath of the Lord is upon you. So what's that mean? That's Bible speak for God is disappointed in you. You ever had heard those words from your parent before? Maybe your mom or your dad. I, I could deal with all the yelling and screaming and the whoopings and all that stuff. But somehow, when dad said, I'm disappointed in you in that quiet voice and just kind of walk away. Man, that was worse of it all. Well, I, that's what he's saying. The wrath of the Lord is upon you. He's saying, man, God's disappointed in you. You're not in a good place with the Lord. Is that loving to tell somebody that? If somebody's not in a good place with the Lord, is that loving? If someone's not in a relationship that honors God, is it good to tell them that they're, they're in a place that dishonors God? Well, sure it is. But the problem is, everybody, not everybody, but many people don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear that that they're in a place that puts them in opposition to God by the choices we're making. And there's lots of things that put you in a place of opposition to God. Right? Being a gossip puts you in opposition to God. It's one of seven things the Lord lists that He hates. Being a liar puts you in that place. Dishonoring mother or father puts you in that place. It's not always the first thing we want to grab. Anything that puts us at enmity with God. We at one time were enemies of God. We were at enmity with Him. We were guilty. But God... In his mercy and his love with which he has loved us has made us alive together in Jesus Christ. He sets us free of the sin and the things that separate us from God and makes us right. And all we have to do is face the target. <laughs> Make an attempt. Follow him. Jehoshaphat made bad choices. And as a result, the wrath of God is upon him. The Lord is disappointed in him. But look at verse 3. Nevertheless, good things are found in you, in that you have removed the wooden images and have prepared your heart to seek God. So the prophet's looking at him. Jehoshaphat's receiving the word of the prophet, and his attitude in receiving the word from the prophet is, I want to be right with God. See, that's the difference between a repentant heart and an unrepentant heart. A repentant heart hears the charge of God, just like David when Nathan said to David, you are that man. David, you're the guy I've been talking about. David could have said, I'm king, you can't talk to me that way, off with his head. But what did he do? He repented. His heart already, Jehoshaphat's heart already is prepared to seek God. God, I was wrong. Now, what does the Bible teach us all throughout the Word of God? If we come to God in an attitude of repentance and ask for forgiveness, what does He do? He forgives us. How many times? All the time. (laughs) All the time. Seventy times seven. That example, by the way, that Jesus gave to Peter, seventy times seven was in terms of years. So as soon as you've forgiven somebody for 490 years, you're off the hook. But last I checked, we're probably not going to live that long. But that was an example. That was the example of how often the Lord had forgiven his people. So this is what God offers us, forgiveness. So look what happens in verse 4. So Jehoshaphat dwelt at Jerusalem, and he went out again among the people from Beersheba to the mountains of Ephraim, and he brought them back to the Lord of their fathers. So once again, he went back. What does the Bible tell us? Man, the Bible tells us in a book of Ephesus, as as Jesus, or I'm sorry, in the book of Revelation about the church at Ephesus, Jesus gives them a report card. And in their report card, he says, you guys aren't doing so great. You're busy about a lot of things, but you have left your first love. He tells them three things to get it back. Remember from where you have fallen, repent, and return and do your first works. 
So what do we see happening to Jehoshaphat here? He's remembering that he has fallen. He repents. He's ready to make his heart right with God. And he goes back to what he had been doing before. Before Ahab, before all the nonsense. He was teaching the people about the word. He was telling them about what God's word said. What it taught. What God's requirements were. So once again, he begins going throughout the land. Himself, the Levites, the priests, the people he appointed. And town by town, teaching them the word of God. And bringing them back. Why? Because the leadership had led the people away. Because Jehoshaphat made peace with with Ahab and made a deal with Ahab, the people got caught up in that nonsense again. Ahab was all about worshiping other gods, whatever God would agree with him. Ahab followed the God that would agree with him, which truly is the God of himself. Well, I don't know if this is okay. Well, I feel like it's okay, so I'm going to make it okay, and I'm going to serve the God who says it's okay. That was Ahab and Jezebel all the way. So Jehoshaphat starts doing what he did before. Look at verse 5. So he said, judges in the land throughout all the fortified cities of Judah, city by city. Here's their purpose. And he said to the judges, take heed to what you are doing. For you do not judge for man, but for the Lord who is with you in the judgment. So he says, I'm setting up judges. That's people that... People in all the cities around Judah to help them walk with God and to to fix their disputes. If you have two people, you have enough people to have an argument. Right? So, wherever the cities were, he put a judge. And the judge's job was to judge. And he's telling them, he's telling them between the people, Hey, take heed to what you're doing. This is not about nepotism. Everybody know what nepotism is? Nepotism is giving favor to your family. This is not about uh, um, having partiality or taking bribes or picking sides. He said to the judges, your job is to sit down and judge between the two. And remember that you are standing in judgment with God. And you want to do what God's word says. What this says, this is our ultimate judge. This is the ultimate, the judgment that we want to follow. And that's what he's laying out for him. So look what he says in the, right in the next verse. Now, therefore, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Now, if that was true for more of us, we'd have less of a problem. And by the way, that word fear is a Hebrew word, pachad, which means terror. Trust me, none of us are going to stand before God and, and not be afraid. No one ever has done it. You will not be the first. But understanding the terror of the Lord. What's the terror of the Lord? The idea that God is a whole lot bigger than us. And a whole lot more worthy and right. And we, if we didn't take things so lightly, like, oh, what's the big deal? I mean, God's going to forgive me anyway, right? Have you heard that attitude before? Well, that's not understanding or walking in what the Bible calls the terror of the Lord. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's what the Bible declares. Fearful thing. So, here in this section, on a couple of verses, we're going to see a different word. But here he's saying, you need to have the terror of the Lord. You need to be afraid of God. Because that will... Help you in some of the struggles you're having in your life. The compromises you're making. And he's speaking to them specifically about judgment. What are those compromises you might make? Take care and do it, he says. For there is no iniquity with the Lord our God. There is no sin. He cannot abide sin. How much sin? A little sin's okay? Just a small sin? I mean, what's the big deal about this little sin? But you know... As we set this time aside and we, we seek the Lord in, in, a, in a time of prayer and fasting for, for 21 days for those who are going along the journey with us, one of the things God's going to do is point out those little things that you think aren't such a big deal that God says is. It is a big deal if you lie. That's one of the original ten. Right? Well, we excuse that stuff all the time. Well, what's the big deal? Somebody calls and, and, and wakes you up and they say to you, did I wake you up? And you say, oh no, I've been up. Well, what is that? A lie. That's a lie. 
Oh, what's the big deal? Well, you don't have the fear of God. God can't abide sin at all. In fact, he hates sin so much that he sent his son to pay a horrific price so that your life could be bought. So for us to look at a sin as though it's a little thing when Christ died for it, when he bled for it, when he was crucified for it, that's offensive, isn't it? I mean, I would take offense if my son or my family member or somebody had died for you and you were taking it as such a little thing. That would offend me. And I think sometimes those things offend God. We, we need to have an understanding. No iniquity. No sin is okay. So don't abide it. Repent of it. Ask for forgiveness. And he'll forgive you. How many times? We already discussed that, right? If you've got to ask God for forgiveness every day for 70 years, you haven't run out of 490, you're going to be okay. But you need to understand that that is worthy of repentance, whatever that sin is that you think is no big deal. The tail-bearing, talking about other people. What's the Bible tell us to do if we got grief with somebody? It's real simple, right? You go talk to them. He says, go talk to him and win your brother. Doesn't say, go talk to him and prove you're right. You're not going to find that in here. He says, go talk to him and win your brother. Win your brother. Make peace. In as much as it is possible for you. It doesn't say, go gather 20 other people that take your side. That's called tail-bearing, gossiping. God hates it. Don't treat it like it's a little thing. Knock it off. Stop. Repent. Take it before the Lord. If you repent of it every day for 70 years, have you run out of 490 years? Does God say he's willing to forgive you, right? So all we need to do is be willing to bring it up. There's no iniquity with the Lord. None. None of it is okay. Secondly, there's no partiality with the Lord. Don't you be making partiality with people. There are people we all connect with easier than other people and we have a tendency to make partiality partiality means i treat one group of people better than i treat another group of people maybe i treat the rich better maybe i treat the poor better maybe i treat the educated better maybe i treat the uneducated or street people better or or this person or that person god says there's no partiality with him you're all the same doesn't matter how many years of school you went to how much money you have or don't have how many wrong things have happened to your life? How many right things? doesn't make any difference. God says there's no partiality. Everybody gets the same love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He didn't love one part better. He doesn't love one part better. But the Jews are, are God's chosen people. Oh, God's God. He gets to choose a special people. Does he save us all? Yeah. Yeah, and you want to see what a prize it is to be God's chosen people? Look at the history of the Jews. And then tell me you want to be a part of that history. Been rough to be the apple of God's eye. To be considered his firstborn, which is what Israel is considered of God. They're my firstborn. Israel's my firstborn. Firstborn's got a special place in your heart, right? But what about the second and the third? Or the seventh? Or the eighth? Or the twelfth. You still love them. God shows no partiality. So therefore, his people ought show no partiality. Is that only talked about in the Old Testament? You say, oh, Jackie, this is Old Testament. Does it talk about not showing partiality in the New Testament? Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely does absolutely says there should be no partiality for there is neither Jew nor Greek barbarian, Scythian, slave or free but we are all one in Christ Jesus so no partiality last part no taking of bribes nobody can buy you not with a favor not with something else you don't take bribes you cannot buy your way into heaven you cannot manipulate your way into it you don't do bribes, don't take bribes, don't offer bribes. So this is what he's saying. Moreover in Jerusalem, for the judgment of the Lord and for controversies, Jehoshaphat appointed some of the Levites 
And the priests and some of the chief fathers of Israel, when they returned to Jerusalem, he commanded them and said to them, Thus you shall act in the fear of the Lord faithfully and with a loyal heart. Thus you shall act in the fear of the Lord. Yirah. That's reverence. That's reverence. Thus you shall act in the reverence of God, honoring Him. Honoring Him above all things, faithfully and with a loyal heart, undivided heart, singleness of purpose, that He is my desire. Look, we got lots of desires, and I want to tell you that God put your wanter in you. Now, it's our job to tune our wanter to that which is of value. There was a time in my life, my wanter wanted a lot of things that, it, that weren't good. And I chased a lot of stuff that didn't bring any profit. It was God who was expecting me to take my wanter and tune it to His frequency. And learn to desire the Lord. Learn to desire His Word. I've had a lot of stuff. I was telling guys last night at discipleship, some of the guys and gals that were a part of it, I said, look, I got a lot of stuff in my closet that not that long ago was a prized possession that I haven't taken out of a case or opened up or looked at for a while. I had a lot of things I thought were going to bring happiness. I thought that when I finally got that Harley, it was going to be the end-all, beat-all. But it wasn't the end-all, beat-all. It was just another thing that got old and tired and run out of gas and needed fixed. And it loses its luster because it does not satisfy. But I need to tune my wanter, my desire to the Lord, who is the desire of the nations, who is the becoming one. In Exodus chapter 3, it said, Moses said, Lord, who do I tell the people is sending me? And the Lord says, you tell them I am that I am. What that means in Hebrew, I am the becoming one. He's saying I'm everything they need. Do you need a healer? He's your healer. You need a provider? He's your provider. You need a redeemer? He's your redeemer. You need a savior? He's your savior. He is everything we need. And that's what he's telling these guys in Jerusalem. Hey, you need to have a loyal heart and reverence God. Honor God in what you do. Honor Him. Give Him that rightful place in your life and have a loyal heart. Whatever cases comes to you from your brethren who dwell in the cities, whether bloodshed or offenses against the law or commandment or statutes or ordinances, you shall warn them lest they trespass against the Lord and the wrath come upon you and your brethren. Do this and you will not be guilty. He's telling them the exact same thing God says to the prophet Ezekiel when he tells Ezekiel, Ezekiel, I'm giving you the word of the Lord. You go sound the warning. You go tell people that road goes to hell. Change the road you're on. Get on a road that goes to heaven. Jesus said, narrow is the way that leads to eternal life. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. Many there are who find it. What is our responsibility to I can't save a soul. I can't die for you. I can't, I can't redeem your life of sin. I've been given one job. Warn them. Hey, that road leads to hell. Because that is what it is to love God and love your neighbor. That road you're on goes to destruction. And God loves you enough to tell you that way, don't go where you want to go. It's not going to satisfy. He says, warn them and you'll be guiltless. What did he tell Ezekiel? Sound the trumpet. If they don't get up for the warning, their blood's not on your hands. But if you never sound the trumpet, if you never bear witness to the truth of who God is in your life and what he's done for you and, and the fact that someone else, according to what God's word says, is not according to my opinion, according to what God's word says, is, is headed to destruction. If they do not have Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they go to hell. Period. So if I don't warn them, then God says, the blood's on your hands. 
But you have the opportunity and you won't take it. You got to pick a side. What side? What side are you going to pick? You can't just walk in the middle. That's not, that's not a side. The middle is devil's territory and, and that's his ground. He's happy if you'll just be quiet. Won't share your faith with a soul. He's happy if you know of people who are, are in rebellion to God and you don't try to encourage them to, to draw near to the Lord. I'm not asking you to go around and shake a fist and condemn people and say, Hey, brother, you're going to hell. You need to share with them the truth of Christ to try to get them on a road that's going to lead them to everlasting life rather than a road that's going to lead to everlasting destruction and separation. So he said, you tell them, you warn them, do this and you will not be guilty. And take notice, Amariah the chief priest is over you in all matters of the Lord. And Zebediah the son of Ishmael, the ruler of the house of Judah, for all the king's matters. Also the Levites will be officials before you. Behave courageously and the Lord will be with the good. Now in verse 11, I want you to recognize something. All throughout that verse, there is organization. Isn't there? It drives me crazy when people say, ah, you know, I'm a Christian, but I just hate organized religion. Is there another kind? God doesn't have organized religion. He didn't make a group of priests and worshipers and worship leaders in that all throughout the Bible. That's through the whole book. I don't like that organized. What that says to me is, I don't want to put myself in submission to anybody else. I will only be in submission to me. Welcome to the world of Ahab and the follower of their own God. God says in Ephesians to submit yourself to one another in the fear of God. We shouldn't be afraid to submit ourselves to one another. Hey, I love Fritz, my brother, forever. Nothing will ever change that. I go up on that stage and grab that bass, I'm in submission to him. He tells me, don't play it like that. I'll play it like he tells me to play it. I'm in submission to him. Whatever he wants me to do, that's my role. When Fritz and I, prior to me coming up on that stage, and there's something special going on in the message, and I come to Fritz and I say, Fritzy, can you do this song, or will you, will you orchestrate this in the worship? He places himself in submission to me. He says, yeah, I'll do that. We submit to each other. It's not a power trip. It's what brothers do who love each other to work or function in a family so the family can move forward. It's called organization. If you have a family with no organization, you didn't have a family. You had chaos and you survived it. Congratulations. Well done. But that's not how it's supposed to be. Here we see organization. This guy's going to be the head of all the things that deal with the Lord. This guy's going to be the head of all the things that deal with the king. These guys are going to have this responsibility. Those guys are going to have that responsibility. And this is how we're going to function as a body. Hey, I, didn't, I didn't invent it. It's in here. Your argument's not with me. What's with him? Well, look what happens in chapter 20. It says, so it happened after this... That the people of Moab and the people of Ammon and, the, and others beside, or with them, besides the Ammonites, came to battle against Jehoshaphat. So verse 1, a little note on the side, the storm is brewing. A storm is brewing. A lot of enemies are coming against Jehoshaphat. It's a perfect time for Jehoshaphat to say, oh yes, you know, this is what I get for messing with Ahab. But this is not God's judgment. Read it. Look at what it says. Verse 2, it says, Then some came and told Jehoshaphat, saying, A great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea, from Syria. And they are from Hazazan Tamar, which is in Gedi. And Jehoshaphat feared. Pachad. He was afraid. He was terrified of the armies that were coming against him. And so he set himself to seek the Lord. What are we supposed to do when we're afraid? We go to the Lord, man. We, we seek His face. It may be that God wants me, like Pastor Saeed, to be in prison in, in Iran in a horrible place for a long period of time. 
That may be God's will. Because God needs to get his word in there. We've all heard about all the guys that have been getting saved as a result of Pastor Saeed being there. Who do you think would have reached those guys if he didn't go? They're not, they don't have a chaplain in Iran to go talk to the guys in jail. It may be that that's God's plan. Well, if that's God's plan, what does he promise? He promises, I will be with you. You won't be alone in the cell. I will strengthen you. I will encourage you. When Paul was in prison and he's, he's laboring for why do I want to go on, God came beside him and said, Paul, have heart. I'm here. I'm taking care of you. It's going to be okay. It's you and me. And he strengthened him. And when Pastor Saeed comes home, should the Lord bring him home? He'll have those kind of stories. I guarantee it. Take it to the bank. So what does Jehoshaphat do? He's faced with this army. What did Hezekiah do when he's faced with Shennacherib? What do they all do? What's Josiah do? What does everybody do, especially the revivalists in the Bible, when they're faced with this huge thing? They go to God. Lord, what do, you, what do I do? What do I do? I love it. He, he sets his heart to seek God, but he goes beyond that. And proclaim the fast throughout all of Judah. Throughout all of Judah. Sunday we started a fast in our body for all those who want to come along for the journey. Want to join us going up the mountain. They have opportunity to do so. He calls this fast throughout all the land of Judah. Look what it says in verse 4. So Judah gathered together to ask help from the Lord. And from all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. So everybody participated. Everybody came in. We don't know how long it was. Could have been short. Could have been long. Doesn't make any difference. They all participated. Well, their lives were all hanging in the balance, right? (laughs) Huge army coming to conquer us. Hey, we may want to seek the Lord here. So they hear the call of their king and they gather. It says, Then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court. And he said, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not the God in heaven And do you not rule over all the kingdoms of the nations? And in your hand is there not power and might so that no one is able to withstand you? Are you not our God who drove out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and gave it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend forever? And they dwell in it and have built you a sanctuary in it for your name saying, if disaster comes upon us, sword, judgment, pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this temple and in your presence. For your name is in this temple and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. What's he talking about? Same thing Solomon said at the dedication to the temple. Hey, if you find yourself in a place that the enemies of the Lord are coming against you and something's going on, You guys remember the verse. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. If they'll turn from their wicked ways. I will hear their cry from heaven. I'll heal their land. So here Joseph and all the people are gathered at the temple. And that's the cry that they're saying. Lord, what are we going to do? They're not making plans. They're not planning anything else. They're putting themselves wholly and completely, totally and utterly in the hands of Almighty God. You ever done that? It's a really cool place to be. I remember having a disease nobody could cure and a marriage that was utterly shattered and a life that looked like it was falling apart at the seam. There was nothing I could do. And I remember... Sitting on a couch in a trailer, in a trailer park in in Midway Park, North Carolina, and telling God, this big pile of junk is all yours. I can't do nothing. I made a mess. In fact, I made all this. So, it's yours. That's a beautiful place to be. A place of utter, abject, total, and complete surrender. That's great. Utter, total, complete submission. We, we have in our what we call the Lord's Prayer, which is really our prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy will be done, thy kingdom come. 
or thy kingdom come, thy will be done on as it is. Well, that's submission. Submission to God's way. A lot of people have a problem with that today. The world's wisdom says, live together for five, six, seven years, and if it works out, then maybe get married. That's not God's way. You get to choose. What are you going to submit to? What are you going to... What are you going to choose to do? Jesus said, no man can serve two masters. You're either with me or you're with the other guy. There ain't no in-between. There ain't no in-between. And I would say, if God calls you vomit, you're not on that side. When's the last time you vomited and scooped up and said, Oh, I treasure this. I'm going to keep this. Why do we think the Bible language is any different? What did the Lord say to the church of Laodicea? You are neither hot nor cold, so I will what? Spew you out of my mouth. But that's not good. A lot of people want to comfort folks and say, Well, I'm sure they're still saved. I, I don't necessarily know that's okay. That's a good idea. I would suggest not being lukewarm. We always want to know, how close to the edge can I walk? You ever walk along the Grand Canyon? Yeah, maybe. Have you, you guys been there before? Let me tell you, when I go to the Grand Canyon, and I go to one of those places where you can walk out at the edge and look, if there's not a guardrail, I don't walk on the edge. How come I don't walk on the edge? Oh, you big chicken. Because I'm not stupid. I have been walking in here and tripped over the carpet. And there's nothing there. And stumbled and fell. What happens if you're on the edge of the Grand Canyon and you do that? That's it. Why do you want to know how close to the edge can I walk? What's the edge? Where's the line that says, I'm, I'm barely saved? That's where I want to be. I want to walk on the barely saved line. Right on the edge of hell. Bad idea. Bad idea. Don't do it. Don't be in that place. Jehoshaphat says, man, Lord, we're going to stand with you. Making our choice. We're with you. Now, he says, here are the people of Ammon, Moab, Mount Seir, whom you have not... Let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt. But they turned from them and did not destroy them. And here they are rewarding us by coming to throw us out of your possession which you have given us to inherit. O our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power against this multitude that is coming against us. Man, I love that he says that. I love that he says, we can't do nothing. We can't beat them. We can't win. We have no power. The problem, number one problem with most men and women is they think they have some semblance of control. One of the first great um, discoveries you should make is that control is an illusion. What do you control? Nothing. I do too. I control whether I'm going to turn left or right right now. Okay, maybe you have that. Knock yourself out. But you can't control what's coming the other way when you do it. You can't control what's going to happen in the next second. Skylab falls out of the sky and lands on your house. Could you control that? We're not in control. Control is an illusion. God is in control. And relinquishing ourselves into His control is a good place to be. And that's what they're doing. He says, we have no power against them, nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. This, if you write in your Bible, circle stars all around verse 12. And then when you go to the book of James, and the book of James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, slow down, take it easy. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives liberally and without reproach. And he will give it. But let him ask how? Not doubting. And what does the Bible describe as the doubting man? 
For he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. You want to know the definition of not being, not doubting, and not being double-minded. It was right there. Nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. Don't go to God with your plan and say, God, this is what you need to do to get me out. God's not interested in your plan. He wants you interested in His. So we come to the Lord not doubting. Not doubting what? His ability. His ability to do what is right in our lives. His ability to govern. His ability to guide. His ability to accomplish His perfect will in and through us. So we say, Lord, I don't know what to do. And that's the honest truth. I don't know what to do. I don't know which choice is right. I don't know if it's better to, 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 to move from this neighborhood to that neighborhood, from this state to that state. I don't know what to do, God. My eyes are on you. You guide me. The Lord says, I'll give that man wisdom every single time. And that's what he's talking about. I don't already have preconceived ideas in my mind. I want what God has. I want what God wants. I want to have my eyes turned toward Him. Verse 13, Now all of Judah, with their little ones, their wives, and their children, stood before the Lord. So they're all gathered together. Had to be a huge number of people gathered around the temple. Verse 14, Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jeel, the son of Mattaniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph, in the midst of the assembly. And he said, Listen, all of you of Judah, you inhabitants of Jerusalem, and you, King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, Do not be afraid or dismayed because of the great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Is that ever different than that? There's no time when the battle is yours. The Lord says, don't be afraid or dismayed. This isn't, this isn't your battle to fight. This is one of the greatest battles in, in the history of Almighty God. It says, and so he said, um, tomorrow go down against them, and they will surely come up the ascent of Ziz, and you will find them in the end of the brook before the wilderness of Jeruel. But you will not need to fight in this battle. Position yourselves and stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Isn't that an awesome thing? Look, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not things we invent or rules we establish. The weapons of our warfare are mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. Who gives the victory? Do we wrestle against flesh and blood? The word declares, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this age. There are things in the spiritual realm we can't even see. Our battle is not with that neighbor who is a pain in the butt. Or that teenage kid that drives down the street too fast. Our battle is not one with carnal mind or carnal ways. Our battle is won through the Lord. He fights it. Sometimes he puts you between a rock and a hard place just so he can show himself mighty to the Egyptians who are watching. That's what he did with the children of Israel when they left Egypt. He took them to Pi-Hahiroth and Migdal. Almost literally those two names translate to a rock and a hard place. They couldn't go nowhere. They couldn't go left, couldn't go right, couldn't go back. The Egyptian army was there, and in front of them was the Red Sea. And God said, I'm doing this so I can show the Egyptians who I am. Well, sometimes the struggles we go through aren't for us at all. They're for the ones who are watching. So we submit. God says, I will not withhold any good thing from you. I will not withhold any good thing from you. If it's good, God will give it to you. If it ain't good, you can whine for it all you want. God's not going to give you the cookie. It's not good for you. You don't get that one. But what is good and what is for His glory, that He will bring about. 
So he says, The Lord who is with you, O Judah and Jerusalem, do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord is with you. And Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem bowed before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. Shaka, proskeneu. They bowed down, did not say a word. The Bible calls it worship. They got on their face before God. The whole multitude, when they heard this word, the prophet stood up and shared the word. Everybody, the king first, the king drops to the ground and everybody follows him. And they just prostrate themselves before the Lord. That's what the word shaka means. To bow down and worship. It doesn't require a lick out of your lips. Proskeneu. To look towards, to turn toward the kiss, to look at longingly. That's a word for worship in the Greek. doesn't require a, a single sound out of your lips. So the first thing that happens, they all just fall on the ground. They prostrate themselves before Almighty God, silent before the Lord. And then in verse 19, the Levites are the children of the Kohathites and the children of the Korahites. <clears throat> stood to praise the Lord God of Israel with voices loud and high. The worship guys. These were the guys that were set aside by David to be worship leaders at the temple. And everybody bows down and worship, and the worship leaders look around, and all of a sudden their hearts are filled with praise, and they jump up and they sing loud and high. You ever been in a Jewish worship service? Let me tell you something. They're not ashamed. They shouted at the top of their lungs. They sing, they dance, they're not ashamed. They're not uptight about showing the emotion of the, the love and the care that they have for God. So they express themselves in worship. I'm sure this was very expressing as they shouted out and praised with voices loud and high. So the next day, verse 20, they rose up early in the morning. They went out to the wilderness of Tekoa. And as they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah, and you inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Believe his prophets, and you will prosper. Is that still true today? Sure it is. Not one of the prophets of God has ever lied. Believe it. Believe it, and you will be strengthened. That's the word for established. Believe it, and you will prosper. You'll have success. Believe it. And when he had consulted with the people, he appointed those who should sing to the Lord, and who should praise the beauty of His holiness. And they went out before the army, and were saying, Praise the Lord, for His mercy endures forever. The worship team led the battle. The worshipers got out in front, and they sang a rather simple song. Praise the Lord for His mercy endures forever. You could probably memorize that one. I don't know how long the walk was on the way, but that's the song they sang. They get tired of saying it. They didn't complain that it wasn't jazzy enough or, or was too jazzy. They just sang the song. They followed the worship team who was praising God from the 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 unity of their hearts, wholly focused on God. Look what it says in verse 22. Now, when they began to sing, when they, when the people joined in, when they got together, when they came in a, in a single voice, the Lord set ambushes against the people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, and they were defeated. They didn't draw a sword. The battle was over when the worship was finished. That is why still today in a church it starts with worship. So worship went before the battle. They went out. The people of Ammon and Moab stood up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir to utterly kill and destroy them. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they helped to destroy one another. Children of Israel didn't do anything. What happened? The armies started fighting each other. Why? Because 
The people are standing there. The armies of Israel probably don't even have a weapon with them. Not a bow, not a sword, not a stick, not a stone. They're just standing there as one giant choir. With this huge army out in front of them, they see each other. It's not like war today where you can lob a bomb, you know, hundreds, thousands of miles and nobody ever saw you. Oh, they're standing. If you're going to kill somebody with a bow or a spear or a sword, you've got to see them. So there they are. And now all they start singing, praising God. And the army starts fighting each other. They killed each other to a man. The Bible says every single one. They just killed each other. Fought against each other. I think that's what happens when God's people get behind what God's doing and do it God's way. I think about the civil rights movement in in our nation. There's a lot of guys who wanted to do that different. They wanted to establish those rights by power and might and the sword. But there was a man... A godly man who said, nope, we're just going to march and we're going to sing. They're going to turn their dogs loose on us and they're going to shoot us and they're going to beat us. And we're going to keep marching. And what happened? You look in your history book. Our world ain't perfect, but it's a whole lot better than it was then those days. And what happened to that man? If the world can silence somebody who's doing something in a mighty way for God, will they do it? But if the world does it, what's it tell me? He finished his race. He accomplished his goal. Because nobody touches a servant of God unless God says it's okay. Nobody. That's how the battles in our world they're going to be fought that's how the victories are going to be had not shouting across the street with a picket sign at somebody on the other side it's not going to be that way it's going to be showing the love of Christ to people who hate you that's what Jesus said isn't it love those who hate you be kind to those who deceitfully use you is that what he said He didn't say, build a bigger organization, yell louder, throw bigger rocks. The weapons of our warfare aren't carnal. You defeat hate with love. Every time. And that's what they did. They just stood there and sang wasn't the love necessarily for the people, but their love for God that granted them the victory. So, when Judah came to the place overlooking the wilderness, they looked toward the multitude and there were their dead bodies fallen to the earth. No one escaped. And when Jehoshaphat and his people came to take their spoil, they found among them an abundance of valuables on the dead bodies and precious jewelry which they stripped off for themselves, more than they could carry away. They were three days gathering the spoil because there was so much. And on the fourth day they assembled in the valley of Bracha. Blessing. The valley of Bracha. For there they blessed the Lord. Therefore the name of that place is called the valley of Bracha until this day. They gathered all the spoils and they just... Bless God. Thank you, Lord. What does an attitude of thanksgiving do to change our day? I'll tell you right now. I wish I could be like Kathy. Almost every day I wake up and I tell her, I'm sorry. She says, why are you sorry? She says, you're married me. You're happy all the time. And I come and bring my little black rain cloud and... 
the sky is falling and whatever stuff I got going. And I got the good part of that deal because I don't know if I could do it without her. Because of that, she's all sunshine and rainbows, man. I ain't lying. You spend some time with her. Now, that don't mean she won't call you out if she thinks you're wrong. Trust me. (laughs) She can call you out. You don't want that. You want the other. But she is thankful and wants to bless the Lord. And and that's the kind of attitude we need to have. They returned every man of Judah and Jerusalem with Jehoshaphat in front of them to go back to Jerusalem with joy. For the Lord had made them rejoice over their enemies. So they came to Jerusalem with stringed instruments and harps and trumpets to the house of God. And the fear of God was on all the kingdoms of those countries when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. Again, it's the word pachad. The other nations were afraid because they saw the hand of God deliver the children of Israel. Then the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet for God gave him rest all around. So Jehoshaphat was king over Judah. He was 35 years old when he became king, and he reigned 25 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Azubah, the daughter of Shilhai. And he walked in the way of his father Asa and did not turn aside from it, doing what was right in the sight of the Lord. Listen, nevertheless, the high places were not taken away, for as yet the people had not directed their hearts to the God of their fathers. We cannot legislate morality. In the beginning, you go back and read it, Jehoshaphat said, I'm taking down all the high places. And I'm sure he went through and took them down. You can take down the outer symbol of rebellion, but you cannot take down that rebellion in a heart. The high places were still in the people's hearts. They still wanted to worship other things, do their own thing, to not align themselves with the Lord God Almighty. It says, Now the rest of the acts of Jehoshaphat, first and last, indeed, they're written in the book of Jehu, the son of Hanani, which is mentioned in the book of the kings of Israel. Now, verse 35 through 37 remind us once again, Jehoshaphat is real. After this, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, allied himself with a Ahaziah, the king of Israel, who acted very wickedly. So you see, the Bible says there is a sin that so easily ensnares us. Whatever the deal was with Jehoshaphat, it was his his struggle all the way through his life, right? Making treaties with the wrong people. Look. So he allied himself with him to make ships to go to Tarshish. And they made ships in Ezion Geber. But Eleazar, the son of Dodavah, of uh, Marashah prophesied against Jehoshaphat saying, Because you have allied yourself with Ahaziah, the Lord has destroyed your works and the ships were wrecked so that they were not able to go to Tarshish. That's pretty loving. God just wiped out the ships. Next chapter, Jehoram takes over. Not such a good guy. We'll take a look at the example that, that he lives. What do I see then? I see in Jehoshaphat a guy who had real struggles, who had incredible victories, and also had some defeats in his life. But I see a guy who never stayed in the defeat. The defeat came, and he would climb up out of that defeat. He would he would find himself exalted because he humbled himself before the Lord. When I look at Jehoshaphat, I see a guy who made a choice to live his life with abandon. Not perfect, but with abandon. And when the Lord told him, you shouldn't be doing this, I guarantee you Jehoshaphat didn't mourn the ships. What he would mourn is what is lost as a result. All throughout God's word, he's calling us to, as men and women to make a choice. A choice that says, I'm willing to live my life with abandon. I'm willing to abandon everything else in life for him. Isn't that what Paul said? I count it all loss for the excellency of Christ Jesus, my Lord. Isn't that what Paul said in Philippians chapter 1? For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For he viewed death as better, which is, by the way, the loss of everything. Tangible, intangible, every relationship. He viewed death as being greater gain. 
Because he had Christ. Death being the loss of all things. He, he, he saw that as great gain. That's living our life with abandon. That's saying, man, I, I want the desire of the nations, the desire of my life to be Jesus Christ. To my eyes to be on Him. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. And what's the Lord say? All these other things will be added unto you. What are the other things he's talking about there? He's talking about all the worries that the nations have. About food and clothing and all this other stuff. And the Lord says, look, I know about all that other stuff. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. You put your desire on him. Does he know what you need? Yeah, he does. He does. And he'll give you what you need the most. And sometimes what you need the most isn't to be comfortable. Sometimes what you need the most is strength for the battle. Courage for the situation. He'll give you what you need most. We get the opportunity to make the choice. I'm going to live with abandon. I'm going to lay it all out. I'm going to let it all go. I'm going to stop holding on to all of those things that are simply just weights to pull me down under the water. I'm going to let go of it all. And I'm just going to look up to the Lord and say, I don't know what to do. I'm just going to keep my eyes on you. And in the end of your life, just like at the end of Jehoshaphat's, it'll say the same thing. And he followed God with a loyal heart. 